from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course, Katarina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Two Emmas, Emily, Wannabe Sleuth, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, Judy, and John. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you guys. This podcast is going to be on Joe Metheny. Now, it comes with just a slight disclaimer because this is going to involve cannibalism, so there's that. Joseph Roy Metheny was born on March 2nd, 1955 in Baltimore, Maryland. So let's get into some history for that time. The USS Nautilus submarine became the first operational nuclear-powered submarine. It was decommissioned in 1980. Also this year, the polio vaccine was declared safe and highly effective. Middle Eastern nations and the United Kingdom formed a cooperative pact similar to NATO. The Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc allies signed the Warsaw Pact, integrating the military, economic, and cultural policy between the several communist nations. This is also the year that the U.S. begins its involvement in the Vietnam conflict. This was also the year that Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her bus seat to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama. Germany joined NATO. In the UK, Ruth Ellis was the last woman in England to be executed by hanging at Holloway Prison. Popular fast food chain McDonald's began this year. James Dean starred in the movie East of Eden and was then killed in a car accident. Popular movies in 1955 were Oklahoma, Rebel Without a Cause, To Catch a Thief, and Seven Year Itch. Popular singers at the time were Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, and Fats Domino. Other notable people born this year were Whoopi Goldberg, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates. So this was the atmosphere that Joe was born into. Joe's parents were Audra Earl Metheny and Jean B. Elliott. Audra was born in Terra Alta, West Virginia in 1913. Joe stated he was one of six children that the couple had. 
Though information about either of his parents is sparse, to say the least, Joe said that his father was a laborer and a hard worker at that, but he was also a terrible alcoholic who died in a car accident when he was just six years old. Now, after, his mother had to work several jobs to be able to support the seven of them, reportedly working as a waitress, a bartender, as well as a truck driver to try to support herself and her children. But Joe described her as neglectful of her children. He said that his childhood was spent mostly hopping from foster home to foster home. Now, Jean refuted this, saying that she did have to work, so she paid people to babysit her children or left them with family for what the kids believed to be a long period of time so that she could, in fact, earn enough money to keep a roof over their heads, clothes on their backs, and food in their bellies. It would seem that Joe was actually never officially placed in any foster home, or there were no records of that that I could find. Now, Jean said that Joe was, in fact, a happy and energetic child who was quite loving, got along well with his peers, and did pretty well in school. He loved his bicycle and rode it as much as he possibly could. Now, I tried to dig for interviews with one of his siblings, but I really couldn't find any. So that leaves us with the quote, he said, she said. And as true crime YouTuber Christina Randall said when she covered this, indeed the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Outside of that, there really isn't any information about his early life. Like many in those days, he joined the U.S. Army after high school. And that's basically his childhood, and it's not much. So let's see what we've got. Now, it was said that his father was an aggressive alcoholic who worked hard. That's all we have. If this is true and his father was indeed addicted to alcohol, then most likely addiction ran in his family, which would help explain events that we'll get into soon. His father died in a car accident when Joe was just six years old. Had his father been drinking? Did alcohol have anything to do with the crash? It's worth pondering. Now, if his father was truly aggressive toward his family, and I didn't read anywhere where Jean disputed that fact, then that could have affected Joe's future behavior. According to HealthyChildren.org, when children are exposed to a traumatic event, responses can vary. Some children become fearful and prefer to stay at home. They may have trouble sleeping or concentrating in school. Appetites change. Children may complain of headaches, stomach aches, and other symptoms. If we are to believe Jean's account of Joe's behavior and personality, we do not see these behaviors at all. He was still described as outgoing, loved to ride his bike, and was just an all-around happy child. Some children exposed to violence learn to resolve their own conflicts in a violent manner, while others seem to become desensitized to violence and the pain and distress of others. Some retreat into a shell, avoiding people and the world around them, and are at an increased risk of behavioral, psychological, and physical problems, academic failure, delinquent acts, adult criminality, and so on. Now, this does sound a lot more like Joe in his adult years. 
Also, with his father dying when he was six and no information about any stepfathers or anything of the like, we know that he and his siblings became latchkey kids, which is a term meaning a child who returns to an empty home after school or a child who is often left at home with no supervision because their parents are away at work. The child can be any age, alone or with siblings. Now, my generation, Generation X, were a bunch of latchkey kids. I was alone most of the time, in fact, so this isn't a new concept, but it was still a fairly new concept, at least during Joe's childhood years. Most all families in the early 60s still had the typical nuclear family. Father went to work, mother stayed home, and was always available to her children. With Joe's father passing away, his mother had no choice. She had to go out and earn money to take care of her children. Any parent worth anything does this. You must do what has to be done to ensure that your children have what they need. I think it is acceptable to assume that his mother didn't want to be away from her children as much as she had to be, but one must do what one has to. Joe wasn't the oldest sibling, and he wasn't the youngest either. They had each other and babysitters. No, it's not ideal, but it's what had to be. And then we have his mother doting on him and his childhood behavior, saying he was loving and a good student, all-around happy child. Now, Joe differs and indicates she was less than maternal, I'd say her description probably closer resembles the truth than his, but we really don't know. So let's continue. In 1973, the now 18-year-old 6'1 Joe joined the Army. He would later say that he was sent to Vietnam for a tour of duty. However, his mother said that he was stationed in Germany, and then some other place said that he never left the States. Sources do say that there is no record of him ever being in Vietnam. The circumstances of his service were reported as unverified in the press reports. Direct U.S. involvement in Vietnam had actually ended at that time. So again, we are left not knowing entirely where he was. What we do know is that he was part of an artillery unit and while stationed Wherever, he started abusing drugs and quickly became addicted to heroin and was also using cocaine. Another thing that he and his mother could actually agree on was that after he joined the army, the two of them barely spoke after. Gene said, quote, he just kept drifting further and further away. I think the worst thing that ever happened to him was drugs. It's a sad, sad story, end quote. Now, once Joe left the military and was back in the States, if he ever left, Baltimore, Maryland was where he landed and he continued using heroin and heavily. Joe also didn't have a place to go when he returned home, so he was essentially homeless and befriended a group of people in South Baltimore who were in a similar state and they all hung out together and did drugs, living in squalid, makeshift camps. His temper and aggressiveness very quickly became well known within his community. 
And not only was Joe doing hardcore drugs and drinking, but he was also beginning to commit petty crimes to support his habit, as that often happens in these circumstances. And again, he was not a small man. He was over six foot tall, and though sources differ as to just how overweight he was during this period, it is safe to say that he was a large and imposing man, most sources saying he weighed about 450 pounds. He would get into trouble, get arrested, and then be let out. Rinse and repeat. But people that would employ him for a time had the opposite to say about him. Apparently, he was dependable and would give an honest day's work. Now, one of his side jobs that he held for quite some time was being a local or long-distance truck driver. And side note, how he passed the physical and drug tests in order to be able to get his CDL is beyond me, but anyway... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So during this time in the late 80s, he met a woman who was also a drug addict and they got together and sources say, kind of varies, but it says that they did get married. And even though drugs were a major part of their lives and relationship, he was at the very least steadily working and he was able to provide them a small trailer house to live in. It wasn't long before she was pregnant and they had a son. And not unlike his own mother, being a truck driver meant he was gone a lot. You see, people like to be able to go into any kind of store and have all of their favorite things right there and available on the shelves. Quite literally, the only way this happens is when a truck driver has to get up and leave his family for long periods of time and drive those goods clear across the country for you. So side note, be nice. So Joe left his family to go to work and life seemed pretty good for him for a few years. But then in the summer of 1994, the now 39-year-old Joe came home off the road. Here are his own words. Quote, Then I got off and went home as I always did. But when I opened the door and turned on the light, I noticed there was nothing there. My old lady had taken everything, including my son, and left me. Her leaving was not my problem, but she took my six-year-old son with her. She was a crack addict and a worthless piece of shit. I would have paid her to get out of my life. All she had to do was take my son over to my mother's house and she could have had everything else and be gone. I found out six months later she had moved on the other side of town with some asshole that had her out selling her ass for drugs. They got busted for drugs and they took my son away from them for child neglect and child abuse. I had no chance of going to social services and trying to get my son back due to my past criminal record. So I took it upon myself with the hatred I had for these two who lost my son to go looking for them. 
I had found out from someone that they were going under that bridge and getting high with some homeless motherfuckers who lived under that bridge. End quote. So it's safe to say that he and his mother were at least on speaking terms at this point again, but his son had indeed been taken by social services and put into foster care. Joe was livid, and that's putting it mildly. A drug-fueled rage, if you will, is what happened. He went to the area he had been told the couple were frequenting to find his now ex-wife, who was a sex worker at this point, and the man, because quite frankly, he wanted revenge. Now, he approached the two men under the bridge and asked them if they knew or had seen his wife and the man that she had been with. These men stated that they had not seen her, but Joe was convinced that they had done drugs with her and her new boyfriend, and he became enraged. At first, he walked away for a moment, but then he went back and he attacked them. He murdered both of the men with an axe that he had, dismembering their bodies. He then went back up to the hill, up to the bridge, and eventually found a sex worker who he then lured down under the bridge with him. He said, quote, I got her high and was trying to get information out of her about my old lady's whereabouts. She acted like she didn't know, so I beat the hell out of her and raped her ass, then killed her. I put her in some bushes and went and lured a second bitch down there. I did the same to her as the last one, but as I was about to throw her in the bushes with the other one, I noticed an old black man down by the river fishing, looking back up at me. I grabbed a steel pipe that was lying by and ran down on him and laid his head wide open. So I put the two girls and him in the river and weighed them down with rocks. That was a very busy night for me. Five murders within about seven hours. I washed up in the river and cleaned up the crime scene as much as I could, then left. End quote. And by cleaning up the crime scene, he had definitely put all three bodies in the river under the bridge, placed rocks on them so they wouldn't float to the surface to be found. And as of today, those remains have never been found. But the links to which he had gone to clean up the crime scene, around two weeks later, he was linked to those murders. The police arrested him and he was put on trial. The issue that came up in court was that the axe was used to kill the two homeless men was also used by a man named Larry Amos to kill yet another homeless man. Larry was also arrested, found guilty of manslaughter, and was sentenced to eight years. So a member of Joe's jury was not entirely convinced that Joe was the one who murdered the other two homeless men with that same axe. In July of 1996, the case was thrown out due to lack of evidence, and Joe was released after a year and a half in jail awaiting his trial. Joe said that while he was in jail, he thought about his murders and said that, at first, they were crimes of passion. He was very upset at losing his son, which I think we can all empathize with. But he said with all that time to think, he realized he actually enjoyed murdering people. Once out of jail, Joe says he went back to his old boss and he asked for his job back. 
There was also kind of a small trailer on the business property that Joe offered to live in and keep an eye on the place for the owner. Since he had been such a good worker and the charges had been dropped, well, his boss agreed and hired him back on, giving him the keys to the front gates of the pallet company. You see, this business was at the end of a dead-end road and pretty isolated, perfect for what he wanted and planned on doing. He immediately began luring sex workers back to this site with the promise of drugs, then strangling them or beating them to death or even stabbing them to death. Then he decided he would strip some of the meat off of their bodies and then supposedly put those cuts of meat into Tupperware bowls with lids to store them in his freezer. He would then bury what was left of the remains in shallow graves in a forested area behind the property. Then around this same time, Joe decided to open a sort of, you know, side of the road, open pit barbecue food truck kind of vibe just outside of this business and property. He sees a business opportunity for the rest of the men that work for this pallet business and anyone else who comes along. And he served and sold open-faced pork sandwiches, roast beef, and so on. But he also mixed the human meat from his freezer in with the pork or beef. That's right, guys. Joe made a point to describe the taste of human meat to be surprisingly similar to pork. He said, quote, if you mix it together, no one can tell the difference, end quote. Needless to say, people absolutely loved his barbecue and he was quite popular. But then he ran out of his, you know, special ingredient after a few weeks. So in November of 1996, he lured a sex worker, 23-year-old Kimberly Spicer, to his trailer he was living on on this business property. I did find a couple of sources that said that he got her high on heroin first, but regardless, he then raped her, strangled her, and killed her. Then in December, he lured another sex worker and personal friend, Rita Kemper, to his trailer. They did drugs together, mostly cocaine, but on this night, when she would not agree to have sex with him, she attempted to leave the trailer and he stood up to come after her. She took off running and he burst through the door, chasing her. In his own words, quote, I lured another bitch up to my trailer. I got her in there and started to rip her clothes off and knocking the hell out of her. She was screaming, but there was no one around to hear her except me, and I just kept on laughing at her. I turned around for a split second, and that was my mistake, for she ran out the door before I could get to her. There was an eight-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire on top of it around the front of the company. There was a stack of wooden pallets next to the fence about 10 feet high. That bitch scaled those pallets like a monkey and jumped the fence and ran down to the main road where some guy in a pickup picked her up and took her to a nearby gas station where they called the cops, end quote. He reportedly yelled at her, quote, I'm going to kill you and bury you in the woods with the other girls, end quote. However, Rita was able to escape him, and she did go straight to the police. 
Realizing what was about to happen, Joe stated that he gathered up Rita's clothing and the keys to the front gate. He opened them and walked through just as the police were arriving. Joe said, quote, they took me down and booked me. She had told them that I said I was going to kill her like the rest, which was true. They had me sitting in a little room down at homicide, drilling me and damn near kissing my ass, trying to find out what I had done, end quote. Joe was indeed arrested and quickly confessed to his other murders, and three days later, he led police to some of the burial sites where he had buried the remains of the women. One woman who he had decapitated was identified through dental records. So in the end, he claimed to have killed 10 people in all. Joe blamed it on the drugs and alcohol, and his lawyer even made a point to say that he was remorseful. During one of his hearings, Joe said that he killed because he enjoyed it, that it gave him a rush and a high unlike any drug. He said, quote, the only thing I feel bad about in any of this is I didn't get to murder the two motherfuckers I was really after. That's my ex-old lady and the bastard she hooked up with, end quote. He also said that he would not be apologizing to the families because his apology would be a lie. He was sentenced to 50 years after one trial, then sentenced to death in another, but it was reduced to life without possibility of parole in the year 2000. Joe was found dead in his prison cell at the Western Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland in August of 2017 at the age of 62. I tried, but I couldn't find what his cause of death was. So, Murder Fam, what we have here is a thrill killer. Their kills can be either premeditated or random, and they are motivated by the excitement and rush of the actual act of killing. Most identified thrill killers are usually younger males, but the specific profile characteristics do vary. Most will go on to say that they felt inadequate and were driven by a need to feel powerful. The concepts behind sadism is common in thrill killings. They often degrade, torture, and or rape their victims, but basically they don't commit murder because of mental instability, the need for sexual satisfaction, or because they feel animosity toward their victim. They often have narcissistic personalities. It's the fear from the victims and the excitement of taking another's life. Another famous thrill killer is the Zodiac Killer. Some experts put Israel Keys into the thrill kill category. Another example is Robert Hansen, though these two men in particular took their activities as murderers to a whole other level. It is agreed that there is an inability to feel compassion or sympathy for their victims. Now, do I think Joe's childhood led him to be a serial killer? Well, in my most humble opinion, no. I see no childhood experiences that he would have had or head trauma experienced or anything of the sort that would rob him of his empathy. He says his trigger was his wife taking their son and then losing him to social services, which again, anyone can sympathize with. But I strongly believe that he had this potential in him long before the murders even began. But that's just me. What do you think? 
Leave me a comment if you're watching the video down below, or you can DM me on Instagram, serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I appreciate that. Thanks, and have a great day.